Hey everyone, this is CCR. We traditionally take off Christmas week as kind of the only week that we don't produce an episode of the MDG Grindcast, but this week I guested on an episode of The Dive Down. Stan had me and Scott, aka Oaf McNamara, on to talk about Pioneer Phoenix, and I've been putting a lot of work in on the deck, and I think this was a nice way to kind of wrap up that Pioneer season, just kind of going over the whole deck matchups, card choices, different builds, that sort of thing. And I think it's a, a pretty useful listen. So we went ahead and put it on our feed and I would definitely highly recommend checking out the Dive Down's other episodes, give them a sub and yeah, good good information. And I'm on it every once in a while. I think this is my second time guesting. So check them out. They are awesome. Hope everybody had a great holiday season and is getting ready for a fun new year. And we will see you in January. Hello and welcome to episode 255 of The Dive Down, a Magic the Gathering podcast focused on the latest decks, trends, and strategies for the casual spike. My name is Stanislav, here in Chicago, still home for the holidays, and on the line with, I, I guess, from the spikiest part of Central North Carolina, returning to the show, CCR, Chris Castro-Rappel. Hello. Hello. Yeah, I, I guess we don't identify like the spikiest geographical location although perhaps like during podcast recording it's like my office and and lee's office is probably the the spikiest spots so yeah i guess that makes sense so those are two points like how do we triangulate what what's the the tri-city of spikiness between your two offices i mean like not to get metaphysical or anything but i feel like when you're speaking with somebody remotely and you're connected i i think that the location kind of gets united in in mm -hmm. a way so mm -hmm. I, I i would say that it's kind of like that single the the nexus is the the conversation and the connection between the the two spots and the two people so that's 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 going to be the spikiest location and right now you know we're we're all in the spikiest although neither of you are in north carolina like you know technically speaking i think you are the spikiest locations in north carolina right now okay well we'll chew on that for the next 90 minutes mm -hmm. also joining us from the yeehaw capital of the world austin texas it's my new friend scott aka Oaf mcnamara hey scott Hello, hello. You know, I'm not really one for a yeehaw, but I'll I'll drop a howdy every <laughs> once in a while. I'm not afraid to drop a howdy here and there. It's a nice, friendly way to say what's up. You know, I don't even if you don't have much of an accent, a howdy is still a nice, friendly Southern greeting. You know, you are wearing the l most comically large cowboy hat I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> a twenty-gallon hat, at least. <laughs> I wanted to really dress up for you today. We're talking about Phoenix. Got to get excited. Uh, twenty-gallon hat, it is. Yeah. Yeah. Is that a, is that a Stetson? Is that like a twenty five hundred dollar hat? <laughs> That's proprietary information. I can't get into that. Sorry. <laughs> so I think Chris needs no introduction. But in case you've not heard of Scott slash Oaf McNamara, our current Pioneer Trophy leader, also a esteemed Pioneer Phoenix grinder and innovator. I think important to note probably that Scott did all of those trophies come with Phoenix, or or were there a couple other? Almost all of them. Yeah. I think probably. Um, aside from maybe one or two, I think. Yeah. Um, okay. When the new set just dropped, um, was it Wilds of Drain that had the new, um, land, the rainbow land for, 
for creature types. I think I played elves immediately and five would with elves <laughs> right out the gates. Um, and then I, I five would with that and then I didn't touch it again. So <laughs> I think that uh, <laughs> you know, it might, it might literally be all Phoenix except for that first one. Yeah. <laughs> so on this week's show, we have come full circle on the dive down and we return to the deck that kicked off this podcast five long years ago. We are once again diving into Is It Phoenix? And sure, we don't have Faithless Looting or Manamorphose or Lightning Bolt or Thought Scour, but those are always the worst cards in the deck. We don't need them. We don't want them. We want Chris, we want Scott, and we're going to talk about one of the hottest decks in Pioneer at the moment and one that's very near and dear to our three hearts. But before all that, some housekeeping. So I do need to take a moment to talk about Heavy Play Card Game Accessories. They are my favorite deck box and playmat and dice box they're designed to improve your gameplay and your game day and i think i've been a noticeably better magic player ever since i've started using these accessories the playmats the deck boxes even the card sleeves they're all designed with these enhanced ergonomics they provide additional mobility and protection and honestly my cards have never felt safer I used to put them in a, a thick metal vault, but I actually think the magnets on the equip mag system probably do more to protect the cards in like a beautiful ergonomic compartment than, you know, the bank vault that I used for my magic cards, comic books, and uh, expensive wines ever could. Using Heavy Play's unique equip mag magnetic system, you can attach your dice box, your deck bundles, your play mats all into a single unit. So they're super easy to carry around, whether you're at the RC or the local game store or playing pickup games outside of the movie theater while you're in line for Aquaman something or other. And if you use the promo code, the dive down 2023, you'll also get 10% off your order over at heavyplay.com. If you know, maybe you don't like shopping online, maybe your credit card got stolen, you should reach out to your LGS. Perhaps they carry it. And if they don't, maybe if you demand it from your LGS, they'll start to carry it too. So check it out. Heavyplay.com promo code, the dive down 2023. You're gonna love it. We got no new patrons, no increased tiers, no new reviews since our last episode because, wait a second, actually, that's not true. We got, I think we got a patron today. Let me pull that up really quick. Bear with me, uno momento. Yes, yes. So we do have one new patron to join the Dive Down Nation. Just six short hours ago, it's Maxon. Welcome to the Dive Down. If you'd like to support the show, you can do so over at patreon.com slash the dive down. Even a buck an episode gets you into our super secret discord where you can talk to me, you can talk to Shane, you can talk to Dave and dozens of other friends and fans and magic players and even like not magic players who just want to hang out because of rules in the discord. So find that at patreon.com slash the dive down. Another way to support the show is using our store at thedivedown.com slash store. Probably too late to get something for Christmas since this episode is coming out after Christmas. But like, blame it on the mail. Like, get a loved one a beanie and say, you know, I, I got this for you in like Black Friday, but it just took forever for the mail to arrive. Here's a beanie. I know you're going to love it. And I'm sure your your friends and family will love the Dive Down beanie. It's warm. It comes in lots of different colors. Dave designed the art. What's not to love? Another way to support the Dive Down, of course, is with Mana Traders using promo code the Dive Down 23 That's the number 23. Gets you 10% off your first two months of renting Magic Online 
cards over at Mana Traders, makes you a better Magic player, whether you're playing Phoenix or other decks in Pioneer or other formats altogether. Check out Mana Traders to get all of your MTGO cards. Gotta mention Barrister and Man. Their promo code, the Dive Down 23, that one's spelled out. It's a long one. You're spelling out 23. I'm not gonna spell it for you. Spell check can can help you with that if you don't know how to spell 23 yourself i i don't know that gets you 10 percent off your first order over at barrister and man wait it's not even 10 percent off it's 15 percent off what am i saying check it out smell better you'll be happier for it lots of fragrances for whatever your style or your aesthetic is hand soaps body soaps beard soaps and shaving soaps they also have colognes beard oils barrister and man rules we love having them as a sponsor and i think you're going to love having their fragrances on your body. All right. Should we jump into the episode now? Before we jump into anything, though, I do want to point out that this is a deck that is like functionally and in positioning and like even in archetype, like completely different from modern Phoenix. So if like I think it behooves you when you're playing matches with this deck to not think about it if you were a modern phoenix player it's not that sort of like tempo game like generally is it phoenix is a control deck in pioneer in a way that it simply wasn't in in modern where you had your uh punk you out with two phoenixes early lines you had thing in the ice to try to turn five you lines and stuff and, and this is a different game entirely that we're playing here so scott did you play the modern deck as well um very briefly i'm you know i love pioneer and that love has honestly kept me from diving into other formats as you know as much lately um so the short answer would be would be no i mean very just very very little like maybe a league or two um back when that deck was a little bit popular but it's mostly been all pioneer phoenix all the time for me yeah so so chris that's that's an interesting observation because like, what are the substantive differences between the two decks? You know, Pioneer has Treasure Cruise and worse removal. Modern had like the best cantrips in the format in the form of Faithless Looting, Serum Visions. Yeah, I mean, I think you kind of have hit the nail on the head. Uh, Phoenix in Pioneer is a Treasure Cruise deck. Phoenix in Modern was an Arclight Phoenix deck and also kind of a thing in the ice deck. And the whole kind of purpose of the deck was to begin pressuring your opponent as quickly as possible. And then if they had removal spells, you would get your card advantage by returning Phoenixes to play. If they didn't have removal spells, then you could easily be attacking for 10 or 13 on turn three. And that was kind of the pressure you were putting your opponent under, which is very important to do in modern. And in longer games, your card advantage came pretty much exclusively from cantripping and getting Phoenixes back. Whereas the Pioneer deck leans very heavily on obviously Treasure Cruise as its card advantage engine. You do get Phoenixes back, but they don't quite start affecting the game as early and we're not a turbo thing in the ice deck either. So your opponent's life total goes down a lot more slowly for the, the Phoenix deck, but that's kind of in Pioneer, but that's kind of okay because you draw so many cards each game. You're playing a different plan entirely. Yeah. All right. So guys, in your opinion, what is Phoenix? Like, is it mid-range then? Is it tempo? Is it turbo Xerox? Whatever that is. Like, Chris, the way you're describing it is that it's a control deck that then just turns the corners with Phoenixes. But, you know, control decks haven't been cantripping decks in a long time. Like, blue, blue-white blue isn't playing opt or consider, etc. They play memory deluge, I guess. How, how would you categorize Phoenix and at least, like, what makes it unique? Sure. You know, I was glad... Chris kind of 
took the brunt of that to start um, labeling it a control deck because I was thinking I was leaning towards control deck as well, but I was worried I was getting a little too cute with my definitions because it is very different than other control decks in the format, right? Like you mentioned, it you know it has cantrips, it has a lot of proactive spells, it has a two drop creature, um, which is a little bit you know unorthodox for a control deck. But I think that on the whole in Pioneer, it, it does play out like a control deck. Um, you said that the removal spells are a bit worse here than they are in Modern. Um, but comparatively, I think that Phoenix gets to play some of the best removal spells in Pioneer. Um, of course, they're much worse than they are in, in Modern, but um, you know, Lightning Axe and Fiery Impulse are kind of the best removal spells spells that Red has to offer, and it just so happens that it they work perfectly with, with the Arclight Phoenix package. I have difficulty labeling this deck into any of the categories, mid-range, tempo, control, combo, um, cleanly, because it does have aspects that um, can play out like any one of those. You know, you have, um, you can have aggressive draws. It makes it feel like an aggro deck where you play a Shredder on two, return a Phoenix on turn three, and then you know, you're getting in there quickly. It plays out like a control deck, like Chris mentioned, where you have so much removal spells and card advantage. You're just kind of controlling the board, waiting to turn the corner. And, you know, even some of the versions with Temporal Trespass and Galvanic Iteration, which I'm sure we'll get into, um, kind of makes it feel like it's got a combo finish as well. Um, so, you know, I could honestly, I could hear an argument for for any of those categories, but I think that Chris was right to, to label it a, a control deck first and foremost. And, and really like an anti-creature deck is almost the the sort of... I, I don't know, like sub archetype that it is. It's a, a control deck that is particularly good at trading up on mana for creatures because Fiery Impulse trades for basically every one, two or three mana creature in the format. And then Lightning Axe trades for Shieldred for one mana. So it, it just, you know, it's the deck that gets to play Terminates for one mana. And, and that's that's where it butters a lot of its bread. So in terms of just like the main game plan, here's how I think about playing Phoenix and Pioneer. I'm curious if you guys agree or disagree. The first two, three turns are all about just like A, removing creatures or B, setting up your eventual Phoenix play. It's just like really about planning the head, keeping things under control for the most part on board, but making sure that your card quality is so high and preferably higher than opponents that when you want to turn the corner and and start turning creatures sideways, you have the clear to do that and you don't have to worry about any obstacles. So your cantrips are not just there to activate phoenixes, but they're there to kind of like get your hand into the position it needs to be so that you can pretty much do what you want on the turn that you want to. And um, the fact that like the deck rewards you for playing two to three or or more spells per turn, um, that's almost kind of like secondary to the fact that it's about just like having the best cards in hand at any given time and using your your cantrips to get there definitely yeah i mean one of the the main draws to phoenix is that um unlike other control decks is you're very proactive in sculpting your hand and so um you, know, you can keep a hand with four cantrips a ledger shredder and two lands and it's like this this hand could be anything this hand could be whatever i want it to be um you know at any given moment and so you can just spend those first couple turns sculpting your hand for more removal spells that's what you need more threats that's what you need maybe you're just digging for um you know a treasure cruise so you can pull ahead and get value off all these cantrips that you're putting into your graveyard um it's just an excellent it's 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 unique as a control deck in that it's it's very proactive in the first couple turns of the game where you actually do get to spend all your mana every turn sculpting your hand and you know getting set up for that mid game where you turn the corner nice all right so let's let's look at deck construction from a high level and then 
go a little deeper into like play patterns and, and best practices. We talked about the cantrips. They are the biggest part of the deck, but the threats I think are really what define Phoenix against other control decks, if if that's what we're labeling it as. We have the titular Arclight Phoenix as your primary win condition, especially in game one, but you also have Ledger Shredder, which is this dual role of hand smoother, Phoenix discarder, and then eventually it becomes a threat. I try to hold my ledger shredders until turn three when possible because this deck isn't great at getting phoenixes out on three. Like it's near impossible. Maybe you can do one or two if you have early lightning axes and phoenixes in hand and then enough cantrips to do it on three. But otherwise, like because you're playing a longer game on average, I find that like getting premium value out of ledger shredder before it eats a fatal push or something else is kind of like generally going to get you a, a minor edge. Do you guys think about it the same way? So that's super matchup dependent. Um, there are a number of matchups where running the Ledger Shredder out on turn two is going to be a lot higher upside. But as you said, like Fatal Push is like kind of the main consideration there. If it's a Fatal Push deck, then I'm probably holding this Ledger Shredder until at least I can get a Knive out of it. Or ideally, like often I'll hold the Ledger Shredder for several turns until I draw the Phoenix and get a discard that I actually want out of it and then it eats a fatal push but i got the value that i needed but in a lot of matchups where the opponent is the one pressuring you then you want to run that ledger shredder out or if there's a like a mana based consideration you know if even playing against rakdos my opponent goes blood tithe harvester on two I kill it at the end of their turn. There's a decent chance I just want to play my Ledger Shredder on turn two because my opponent's three mana spells are so their proactive three mana spells are so powerful. And now they have to choose between casting a three mana spell and letting me untap with the Ledger Shredder, which might just end the game on the spot effectively, or killing my Ledger Shredder and not being able to play a Graveyard Trespasser or a Fable of the Mirror Breaker that turn uh, because you know, I, I agree that it's not always the easiest to get a Phoenix back on three, but with the additional cantrip of sleight of hand now, it happens more often. And untapping with a ledger shredder like virtually guarantees that the first Phoenix will be in play at the end of your third turn. So there's definitely a lot of consideration. And then in, against decks with like very little removal, like against Amalia game one, you just want that ledger shredder in play as soon as possible. Yeah, there's a shocking amount of proactive decks in Pioneer that just really don't have ways to kill it, you know? So, like Chris mentioned, Amalia or um, Convoke is another great example where it really is important to get that out on turn two. Because um, Stan, like you mentioned, it's really difficult to get a Phoenix into play and get that going as early as turn three, but Shredder is one of the few ways where you can let that happen. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it is it is matchup dependent. It's situational dependent, you know, Um Phoenix, because you don't have faith this looting, the Pioneer Phoenix deck really does sometimes struggle to get that Phoenix out of your hand. Um, Shredder is, I think, the best way to do it, along with Lightning Axe. But, um, you know, you're right, there's a lot of matchups where Phoenixes, uh, your Shredders die pretty often, and they don't have a ton of um, convenient targets for Lightning Axe. And so saving that Shredder until you can get an, a, a, at least one connive out of it um, can definitely be the difference between having a, a functioning hand and, and not. And then the newest creature to enter the deck, like in the last year, I, I think this was printed this year, Picklock Prankster. One in a blue, one three flying fairy that has an adventure where you mill four cards and then a fairy or instant slash sorcery 
that was milled this way can go back to your hand. So once again, like this is a great way to get phoenixes in your yard, but then you can cast it for two at instant speed. The adventure, by the way, is also an instant, but you can also flash in the fairy, um, right? Am I remembering that correctly? The fairy has flash as well? No, it does not have flash. Oh, okay. Just Brazen Borrower, my Just bad. Flying and, and Vigilance are, are the two oh, that's what it is. abilities on that thing. Yeah, but then it's a 1-3 Flying Vigilance. Great card. Not the best threat. Like, it'll get you some points, but such an important addition to the deck. Like, it's, I think, next to Ledger Shredder and Lightning Axe, it's it's kind of, like, made the f- getting Phoenixes in the yard, like, way reliable so that you don't have to play, if you don't want to, Otherworldly Gaze or or is it charm for that matter pieces of the puzzle is the one that it it replaced mm-hmm. and I, I i feel like i can let scott talk about this sort of because coming to this conclusion was an adventure and i think we like independently arrived at like yes we want picklock pranksters which was felt good to have that confirmed but yeah i, I think I, scott I, I definitely want to hear your your take on oh yes picklock is the one that we want for sure you're gonna have to stop me probably because i had so much to talk about with picklock um over pieces um, when Picklaw got printed alongside Sleight of Hand, it kind of got um, shoved under the rug in terms of obvious additions to, to Phoenix. Everyone was kind of excited to try out Phoenix again because of Sleight of Hand and um, free, you know, free the Fey. Picklock Prankster wasn't really discussed as too much of an option. I think I'll, I'll shout out uh, Devin or AKA Doomwick here. Um, I think the first person that brought the cards to, to my attention was was do make in one of his you know spoiler review videos where he, he discussed the possibility of maybe free the fey going into phoenix i wasn't totally convinced um one of the things about free the fey and picklock prankster it doesn't read particularly strong um you know when you read the card for the first time it doesn't sound like a, a very exciting card like it's um you know it's the fact that it doesn't draw two cards is kind of a big deal i know that's one of the things that re- people really like about pieces of the puzzle um, and it wasn't until the RC cycle that um, the European RC cycle, I forget exactly where that was or, or when that was, um, sometime after Wilds of Aldrin got printed, um, I, I, know, I started to see some of the Phoenix decks that did well incorporate just a few Picklock Pranksters um, you know, into their list. Which surprised me because again, it doesn't read super, um, you know, like a super strong card. But um, I figured I'd I'd give it a try. I went for the the full four, cut all the pieces just so I could draw it as much as I could, just so I could see it in action. And um, I'll tell you what, after that first league, I really never went back. Um, <laughs> the fact that um, it's it's cheaper is a huge deal for a lot of reasons that we'll get into. The fact that it's instant speed means that your sideboard counter spells get a whole lot less awkward. That was kind of one of the awkward things about Phoenix is you play five or six counter spells in your sideboard, but you primarily want to act as a sorcery speed deck. Um, so the fact that it's instant you know, makes makes your sideboard plan a lot less awkward. Um, and to my surprise, the Picklock Prankster half, the body, 1-3 um, Flying Vigilance, ended up being far more relevant than, than I could have imagined. Um, the fact that it's just a free spell sitting out there to cast on turns where you wouldn't otherwise be able to trigger connive for your shredders. Um, the fact that it has vigilance means that uh, it just, you know, it, it races really well. It double blocks really well. Uh, I've just been so impressed by Picklock Prankster that, um, you know, there's all sorts of arguments that you could have to try and convince someone to play 
picklock prankster over pieces of the puzzle in their phoenix deck um but all of those arguments um don't really matter because all i need all all you need to do if you're not convinced is just to try it like one time <laughs> and then you'll be you'll be totally convinced um that this is just a, a better fit for the deck I, I mean, I agree. It's convincing. I, I've I've only picked up Phoenix and Pioneer uh, within the last month or so. I had never really liked it in the past. I I, I tried to play it because I always loved the modern deck. And I, I guess maybe I hadn't put two and two together that the modern Phoenix deck was just a fundamentally different deck. I, it was always just a gut feeling to me that something was off with Pioneer. been playing it for the last month or so and just kind of like falling in love with it all over again. By the time I picked it up, everyone had moved on to Picklock Prankster and like it the benefit is i think is really evident for all the reasons you said like being able to play at instant speed having just like a, a flying vigilance body to both block and like get in some chip damage i think other than phoenix's the picklock prankster is one of your like oddly one of your best sources of reach since your red spells don't do additional damage and like if you're low on birds or or people are like finding a way to exile them against control for instance like having just some way to just deal like bits of pressure here and there just becomes really important i think over the course of a match really so good find devin and scott yeah i'll, I'll certainly give devin uh credit for that one um but i just just want to touch on what, what you mentioned there stan is in the games that get a bit messy in the games where maybe they're using graveyard hate to get rid of your phoenixes or um you just kind of have an anemic draw where you're not able to pressure them much that's when having the 1-3 the body is really nice because, you know, suddenly you have two of those things in play. You hard cast the Phoenix and boom, you're getting in for five in the air. You got some good double blocks for their man lands. And it's like, man, this is, you know, and again, it feels like a total free roll because you're playing the card for the, the spell half. But just incidentally, you get this awesome body that helps you race in the late game. Um, so... Well, awesome is maybe going no, a no, little, no, no, but no. It's, <laughs> it's it a, is nice to get it for free. It's in the threat section here, Chris. We're going to talk about it as a threat. <laughs> I, I have, you know, in a game where I got get losted twice and then I just had two pick lock pranksters in my adventure zone and was like, oh, OK. And then I ended up with like a three, five and a two, four pick lock prankster. And that that was very I mean, they're very real a lot of the time, but th those were monsters. Those ones were awesome. <laughs> yeah. Um, and just. Real quick, just to continue to touch on Picklock Prankster before we before we move on. The fact that it's cheaper seems like a really obvious thing, but it makes the deck better in so many ways, and it speeds up the deck by a turn in a lot of instances. So we mentioned how it can be difficult to get a Phoenix back as early as turn three. Picklock Prankster is one way that can happen, where you free the Fey on turn two, happen to get lucky, mill a Phoenix, and you're off to the races as early as turn three. Um, but also as you go later into the game and you start double and triple spelling, Turn four, for example. Turn four might be an awkward turn if you want to cast pieces of the puzzle because you can mill a phoenix and um, you know maybe another spell. You're not going to be able to triple spell, but free the fate lets you do all of that in one turn and really use all your mana every single turn, which is really what the phoenix deck is trying to do. This is also, and I know I'm getting ahead of ourselves, but that turn four free the fay as your first of three spells is kind of a critical turn for the deck a lot of the time, and it's one of the things that convinced me like oh yeah is it phoenix is the right build and demir is not because that turn four where you like pick lock prankster or, or you you free the fey find a removal spell cast a cantrip and cast a lightning axe discarding a phoenix is like something that you want on turn four 
quite a bit. You know, that that's one of the goal turns that you have. And when you have bitter triumph costing two mana, then that turn becomes a lot more difficult. That that becomes a, a turn five sequence or just like something that you're not really triple spelling with the card that discards your Phoenix as easily. And I know like we'll get into this later in the episode, but that's one of the things that that like hyper efficient sequence of spells involving a lightning axe was one of the things that was just very very important to convincing me like yeah you want the red man in the deck this is how to how to build it mm-hmm. yeah one of the things i really appreciate about free the fey it almost never whiffs just like the fact that you're only playing 18 lands by and large i, I think in most of the, these decks i'm only seeing 18 lands does that sound right to you guys yeah, that's a little bit of a point of contention with the deck. You know, 17 to 18 lands plus a couple of the, the spell flip lands is, is pretty common. So those are extra hits off the pick lock, which is great. But yeah, generally about 17 to 18 lands. Whether you get birds in the yard or not, like having only 12 threats, four of them being prankster, which prankster gets back. I just feel like I can count on one hand how many times I freed the fey and ended up with nothing and and there's a chance that that's never happened and perhaps my sample size isn't large enough yet but like it's just so consistent so reliable you always like find at least something to do and it replaces itself and even if it technically doesn't replace itself like it's filled the yard for treasure cruise while also drawing you a one three flyer that you can then play whenever you're ready to do that so I, i will say i did have a wild turn this RC where I cast my first free the Fey of the turn and it hit three phoenixes in a land and that which is f- okay fine I'm like okay with this we hit three phoenixes my second free the Fey however only hit lands and a crackling drake which was problematic because I did have a spell but it was a lightning axe for a creature that I didn't care about killing discarding the last card from my hand brought back three phoenixes but then my opponent just like stomped two of them and I had nothing left and lost that game so but you know it is it is worth noting that um, it feels bad when you miss off the free the fey but um, it's a lot easier to hit one spell in the top four cards than two spells in the top five so again making that comparison to piece of the puzzle which is really the the point of contention that a lot of Phoenix players still aren't totally convinced convinced by that you definitely have a fail rate less often because you're only getting that one card. So yeah, every time you cast pieces of the puzzle and you hit one opt, you just kind of want to die. Right. right. <laughs> Let's touch on the additional threats really quick. Some of these are post board threats. Others are like ones and twos that you might see main. Crackling Drake, I think, is pretty consistent across most sideboards. At least two of them. I've seen some people play up to four. I find that this card is just fantastic when people are pressuring your graveyard because it kind of doesn't care. And if it hits the board, it's always at least replaced itself. I don't know that it's good enough to play game one in a Phoenix shell, but I bring it in a lot because I'm like shaving on some number of graveyard matters cards. Yeah, I mean, I think Crackling Drake is one of the best sideboard cards in Pioneer, really, in terms of how it fits into the Phoenix shell. Um, you're a very graveyard-centric deck, game one. And what happens games two and three is your opponent will bring in some graveyard hate, of course. And it does two things to your deck. It makes it so your threats aren't as potent. It's hard to get Arclight Phoenixes back consistently with graveyard hate um, keeping you down. And it also makes Treasure Crews um, difficult to cast as well. And so what you're looking for in your post-board threats are... Threats first and foremost, right? You want to be able to kill your opponent when your when your phoenixes aren't really working, but you also want them to be somewhat value centric because your treasure cruises are kind of getting pressured as well. 
you know, against the decks that are hurting your graveyard, they're generally playing a resource game um, and trying to keep you down that way. So Crackling Drake just fits in so perfectly as this like threat slash value engine kind of rolled into one. Um, it's just a perfect sideboard card for the deck. You guys remember Thing in the Ice? Nope. <laughs> How the Mighty Have Fallen. That's right. I, I, I think I've like seen post RC some people like start to be Thing in the Ice truthers again. Maybe because of Amalia specifically, but why like is Fatal Push the reason Thing in the Ice got bad and, and the rise of Rakdos? What what happened there? I think there's a lot going on. I mean, in Pioneer specifically, Thing in the Ice was mostly a tech anti-mono green card that would just allow you to end the game a little more quickly and hopefully keep them off of having a bunch of devotion. Sometimes they just like would replay all of their stuff the turn after you bounced it because Nykthos is, you know, kind of not a real magic card. But that that's kind of what it was for. I do respect the trying to find something else for the Amalia matchup. And I think Thing in the Ice could be part of it. One thing that is so tough is that in that matchup specifically, you can't it it you don't kill them with phoenixes as easily as you kill other people with phoenixes because they gain a bunch of incidental life. You don't always want to just cast a bunch of spells during your main phase so they can be kind of hard to get back. And they're not that good defensively once their guys are you know if they've explored a couple of times if their wild growth walker is a two four there's just like a lot of ways that the phoenixes aren't the best threat against amalia so most of the sideboard plans involve taking out some or all of your phoenixes and then you need your juke threats crackling drake if you can find a place to land it against amalia you know does its thing suspend one destroy target player but a lot of times you have if you draw two crackling drakes against Amalia, you might as well scoop. You just like can't get them into play. So I have been interested in finding some, you know, spending some of the sideboard juke threat slots on cheaper threats. I think like young pyromancer is not that bad there because it keeps you from dying to the random one one attackers after you've paid three life for ward like three or four times. Uh, so, you know, that's a possibility. Brazen Borrower is okay, but doesn't kill all that fast. Not the young Pyromancer kills all that fast. And so maybe Thing in the Ice could be a thing that like kills a little more quickly. And when you flip the thing, you're may probably not going to die, but you might just die right after you flip the Thing in the Ice. Amalia is a hell of a magic deck. Yeah, yeah well, I'm sure we'll get more into the, the matchups um, down the road and talking about Amalia specifically because that one had a really big weekend and is worth discussing. But yeah, I, you know, I'm not expecting to see a whole lot of thing in the ice in these decks moving forward, unless you got some, you know, niche cyborg tech, maybe for Amalia, or like Chris was talking about. Um, a lot of people for a while were just main decking all their thing in the ices and not playing shredders instead. That's something that you see um, was very popular when Monogreen was around. And that, like Chris said, is great against Monogreen. But I think that when you do that, um, you kind of introduce some structural problems with a deck where, Shredder not only is a great two drop, but it's an important slot as a discard outlet in the deck. And, you know, without Faithless Looting and without Shredder, it's pretty difficult to get enough of those ways to get your Phoenixes out of your hand. And so for me, even when it was kind of enticing to play Thing in the Ice when Monogreen was popular, it wasn't really much of a choice. It was, you know, Shredder needs to be in the deck as a, you know, as a discard outlet for just for structural reasons. Yeah. And, and you see the way that these decks are built when somebody has decided like, oh, my two drop is thing in the ice. Like, uh, okay, yeah, you can do that. But then you have to run multiple is it charms in order to have the discard outlets. 
And so I think you're kind of, uh, you know, it, it's a, a one step forward, one step back kind of thing. You're not really improving your deck that much because you're just putting multiple of this like very clunky effect into the deck. That's is a charm is just not that good of a card. No perfect one of i find like whenever i draw the one i'm just like okay i'm gonna find some use for this but mm -hmm. anything more than that it, it just i think it kind of gets in its own way yeah i'm discarding is a charms to is a charms and spider-man's pointing at himself <laughs> so before i forget chris did you say that you're taking some if not all of your phoenixes out in the amalia matchup or is it a different matchup what what's going on there multiple matchups uh but generally matchups where the phoenixes aren't actually so against a deck like Rakdos, which has not that much life gain, no flying blockers or anything, and they're trying to grind you out, even though they have a fair amount of graveyard hate, you know, your phoenixes are just really real threats. They just keep dealing damage. They keep coming back over and over again, and your opponent just gets battered by them and kind of feels that pressure all game long against a deck like Amalia, where they're gaining a couple of life each turn. And, you know, you put a 3-2 flyer into play. Sometimes it almost doesn't matter. You put two 3-2 flyers in play. Okay, that's good. But it might take five turns to kill your opponent with those two 3-2 flyers because they, they gain quite a bit of life. Now, if they have two mana confluences in play, that, you know, is a different story. But uh, there are just matchups where if the recursiveness of the Phoenixes doesn't matter at all and they don't pressure your opponent in as meaningful a way as they do in other matchups, then you have to start looking at them as like just not the best threat possible. And and to me, Amalia is one of those matchups. Uh, I think against like, I, I played against Angels in this RC, and I think you just immediately cut all of your Phoenixes against Angels because they don't, that, that body is meaningless in that matchup. So you need to be thinking about like, are, are these three, two recursive threats worth it in the matchup most matchups yeah that's why there's a deck called phoenix in the format but some of the matchups uh, yeah it's just not the thing you know i have to say um i've i have not fully bought into this line of thinking chris i haven't i haven't <laughs> fully committed and just cut all the phoenixes in like against like amalia for example but i mean your logic makes a ton of sense uh, it's just hard to be brave enough to actually pull the trigger and, and do that you know it's uh, i'm not confident cutting all of the phoenixes okay. is 100% right. I think that was a uh that or that idea for me originated with uh Julian Henry, I think. Mm -hmm. Um and and I kind of accepted it and it seemed okay, but I, I think maybe having a couple in is still fine. I don't think you want the full playset in post board though. Totally on board with trimming phoenixes and a lot of matchups for sure, but it it it, it could be right. It just feels scary to not have any of them yeah. in post board, you know. It, it also makes your lightning axes like measurably worse when you have no phoenixes and so when you're when you're incentivized to cast a lot of lightning axes the way you are against such a creature heavy deck as amalia it is really costly to take all of your phoenixes out so that's one thing that yeah i am not sure about okay we'll, we'll dive into the amalia matchup a bit more down the road i'm sure <laughs> okay let, let's get closer to that conversation by touching on the next section which is just cantrips the deck is playing I think like upwards of 20 cantrips if you include treasure crews in that camp, but we have opt, we have consider, we have sleight of hand. These are usually four ofs, but I see the sleight of hand as a three of sometimes. Um, and then I see otherworldly gaze sort of come and go depending on who's playing the deck. 
Chris, you gave a pretty impassioned defense of otherworldly gays on the on on Grindcast recently about how like how helpful it is not just to have another one mana cantrip, but like to set up treasure cruises. I'm, I've been playing otherworldly gays whenever I play Phoenix and Explorer because we don't have temporal trespass. And and the thing I really like about otherworldly gays is that it's awesome on your draw step, like either as flashback or not, just to make sure that you're increasingly likely to actually draw something really good in a way that like, because we don't have serum visions to set up future draws, opt and consider and, and sleight of hand, like they don't set you up for future turns in the same way that like, I think otherworldly gaze actually plays really well with, with multiple cantrips, whether or not you have a big Phoenix turn. Scott, where are you at on gaze these days? Um, Chris, I know Chris knows he's, he's laughing at me now. Um, I honestly, I don't think I have a great argument um, against otherworldly gaze. I mean, listen, it's a great game one card. Um, Phoenix thrives when it's able to use all its mana every turn on just casting spells, casting cantrips, just ripping through your deck. And otherworldly gaze lets you do that, albeit at a card disadvantage. Um, for me, my experience with the card has been that it's just a hard, difficult card to play with. Um, I don't know if you felt the same way, Stan, but I, I put that card into my deck because I finally started hearing some some good arguments for it. I said, okay, you know, I'm going to give this a try. And man, I just found it being incredibly difficult to, um, you know, get the timing right. I hated agonizing in my draw step every turn, thinking like, okay, do I flash this back? Do I not? Do I just take my draw step? You know, and when you look at the top three cards, knowing how many to bin, um, counting out your, how much your treasure cruises are going to cost, counting out what your draw steps are going to look like. It's kind of like <laughs> the best way I can describe it is I feel like, um, I don't know if you've ever played Guitar Hero, Stan, or, or CCR, but I've been playing on hard mode for a long time. And then Otherworldly Gaze is like going to expert and adding that last key with your pinky. <laughs> and it's like, suddenly I don't know how to do this. Like suddenly this is way harder now. And um, so I, I tend to I tend to avoid it. Maybe that's a lazy difficulty answer, but it's kind of where I'm at at the moment. No, I, I, I think that's really real. And I think that's also one thing, you know, people love to talk about how difficult their decks are to play. And it's like, that's not that's not a thing to brag about. Like there if if this deck has a, a, a 50, 55 percent win rate and this deck has a 55 percent win rate when played optimally, but one is harder to play than the other. You should pick the easier to play deck. Right. Like that just will be better for you. And, and I, I think that. If you look at two lists and one is an otherworldly gaze list and one is not an otherworldly gaze list and you think they have similar win rates or maybe the gaze deck has a very slightly higher win rate when piloted perfectly, but then you have like an extra micro decision every single turn because you're deciding whether or not to flashback this otherworldly gaze like that's a real argument to just go with the slightly simpler build of the deck. I agree that. It is not an easy card to play, and I I made mistakes with it this weekend for sure. Uh, I, you know, I have that same argument for it. It just gives you a little higher just density of spells. You dig more for phoenixes and faster, and you also, in the grindy games, it's like an incredible game one card. You board it out in almost every matchup because you don't want it if there's any graveyard hate in your opponent's deck, of course. But, you know, game one against Rakdos, even though they're thought seizing you, maybe because they're thought seizing you, it's quite good. As long as you find some number of Phoenixes in that game one, you can have no cards in your hand 
but you have an otherworldly gaze in your graveyard, you're probably triple spelling that turn. Yeah. And, you know, as we as we circle around like this being a difficult card to play, I think one of the things I found tricky about it is how to sequence it with the other cantrips, like whether you're using it to set up better draws from consider op sleight of hand or um, if you're doing it at the end of the chain because you just want to like go through as many cards as possible and then just like dump some cards in your yard in hopes that like that's what gets a phoenix in there because you don't have another discard outlet in your hand and and i think like figuring out the right position at any given moment is is kind of like one of the trickiest things about it i will say like i don't necessarily see it as card disadvantage on the front side because it's still drawing itself like if it's not being picked out of the graveyard then you have a two mana otherworldly gaze to cast again or at a future turn which maybe i'm just kind of like picking at straws here but it's it's like there's still more action to be had when you just cast the first otherworldly gaze even if it's the only card right. in your hand no that's 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 a fair point and like especially given the fact that you're a four treasure cruise deck it's like even if you you, you do view it as card disadvantage you can afford it right like that's kind of the the upside of playing four treasure cruises is you're getting that card advantage elsewhere you don't need all of your cards to be super great value plays like look at lightning axe for example like it's two for one a lot of the time you play it unless you're discarding a phoenix which you'd like to but doesn't always come up you're still happy trading two cards for one just because you're ripping through your deck so quickly you're drawing so many cards with crews that it doesn't really matter you're just happy to get the efficient removal spell um something i do want to mention before we move off of otherworldly gaze is that part of my trepidation to playing it was that um, there are a lot of really excellent Phoenix players in Pioneer that have been playing um, for a, you know, playing Phoenix for a long time. Like I'm thinking about like Canister, for example, um, has been a stalwart for Phoenix. And all of the the great Phoenix players um, before Slide of Hand, before Picklock, um, most of them weren't playing Otherworldly Gaze. They were just playing the other Cantrips, and they're playing the the pieces of the puzzle and the time walks and otherworldly gaze was was legal right and so like my, my question is what what exactly changed about these decks um with the addition of slide of hand and pick lock what about the addition of those cards makes otherworldly gaze a better fit for the deck than it used to be chris do you have any insight into why that might be yeah actually i do have an answer to that so i think that and i think this is also key to figuring out how to build the deck once you put the otherworldly gazes in because otherworldly gaze is kind of uh putting a your your stake in the ground and saying like i want to be just this very efficient like linear no nonsense phoenix deck where i am casting my spells i am dumping cards into the graveyard and i am spending all of my mana on spells every single turn and just ripping through my deck as quickly as possible and i don't think that otherworldly gaze can work in a pieces of the puzzle deck because of the thing we were talking about earlier turn three phoenix is not really a thing in a pieces of the puzzle deck turn three phoenixes are absolutely a thing in a picklock prankster deck and I think that having that setup card of like picklock prankster on turn two means that you're just much more efficient at making phoenixes early and often and otherworldly gaze just like dovetails really nicely with the I'm going to make phoenixes as quick as possible and I'm going to, you know, keep making them over the course of the game and then hopefully set up some treasure cruises along the way and kind of 
you know, where the piece of the puzzle deck is like an 80% treasure cruise deck and a 20% Phoenix deck or something like that. Then we kind of like move the needle more and more towards being a Phoenix deck. Now, whether that's actually like good and the thing that you want to be doing is something you have to kind of determine by looking at the format and and seeing if it makes sense and that sort of thing. Uh, It has felt pretty good to me. But also, like, I think playing Otherworldly Gaze, probably you don't want Trespass combo in your deck, right? Because it kind of doesn't fit with that plan of dig, 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 cruise, 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 Phoenix, Phoenix, Phoenix. Uh, it, it If you get a Trespass stuck in your hand or a Galvanic iteration in your hand while you're kind of in... I, I kind of see casting otherworldly gaze is kind of going into a card deficit for a little bit as you and then you make up for it once you hit the cruise if you're going into a card deficit by casting otherworldly gaze and then you also draw a dead card like a temporal trespass or a galvanic iteration now you're too many cards down and it becomes much more difficult to recover from that deficit so i I think that you have to if you want to be casting otherworldly gaze, then you want to be focused on that like spin, spin, spin type gameplay and got to determine if that's what you want to be doing. Okay. Yeah, no, fair enough. Um, and you know, it also, it also makes things nice and easy for sideboarding, right? Cause it's the first card you get to cut in almost every matchup. <laughs> it's so hard to sideboard with this deck. If you don't have <laughs> otherworldly gaze in the main mm-hmm. deck, but if you do, that's like three slots right there. For sure. For sure. All right, guys, can I share, like, I don't know, this might be a hot take. Treasure Cruise? Pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> it's all right. We we should we should put it in more decks. Like, you draw three cards for one mana. I, that's one of the best cards ever made. Yeah, the card is incredible. And like Chris rightly identified at the beginning of the cast, like, this is, first and foremost, a Treasure Cruise deck. This is one of the most powerful cards in the format. Um, it does take a lot of work to enable it. Like if you look at the rest of our deck, it's pretty much just all one mana spells in order to make that happen. Even cards prioritizing playing cards that mill ourselves, like Picklock, to make it work. But it's all worth it because one mana draw three is just unbelievable um, in a format as powered down as Pioneer is. So yeah, definitely the reason to play the deck. You, you mentioned it's one of the most powerful cards in the format. Is this like actually the best card in the deck by a significant margin? Like th- this is the card that makes me feel like in the games where I'm either at parity, it gets me ahead very quickly. Or in the games where I'm ahead, it just like shuts the door and, and kind of keeps your opponent from ever clawing back. And when you're behind, like it can also claw you back too. Like it kind of gets you back in the game because... So often when you're behind with Phoenix, um, with the exception of the Amalia decks that just kind of combo you on the spot, other decks, like when I fall behind, it's because like they've been successful in exchanging resources one for one over and over and over again. And like eventually get to the po- get me to the point where I don't have enough cards to like get the Phoenixes out of the yard. And then Treasure Cruise just sort of is like a reset button. And it's like, oh, yeah, all of a sudden I'm flush with resources sometimes i'm even casting multiple treasure cruises if like my graveyard's big enough and i draw a second one and like boom i can actually do it twice in a row and it's like now i'm back in the game and and you've just spent all of your time and resources in eight turns just going one for one for a while yeah it definitely completely opens up the game when you just draw that cruise off the top after getting thought seized or disrupted multiple times um and i would say other than arclight phoenix it's probably the only card in the deck that i would say this deck can't exist without it. It's just like the whole deck's built around it. It's the reason to play it. Um, 
this card were to not be in the format for one reason or another, then I just wouldn't see a reason to fill your deck with all these cantrips and stuff. That's just kind of the reason to be doing to be doing Phoenix things at this point. Yeah, it's the the shoulder slump test, right? Like when does your <laughs> opponent kind of sink down into their chair? It's when you rip that treasure cruise or right. when you get the second Phoenix in the graveyard. Like those are the two like, woof, this game's going my way moments. And Treasure Cruise is the simple one. You just have to have put the cards in your graveyard and then draw the Treasure Cruise. So you can shave one or two post board, like especially if it's game three and you've seen like really effective graveyard hate. Maybe it's a rest in peace or you know whatever else. But like I I, I don't think I ever shave all of them because even if they're dead in hand, like then you pitch them to um, Ledger Shredders, you pitch them to to axes, what have you. But like, it's not uncommon for me to like go to three or or sometimes go to two if I'm really concerned. Definitely, definitely, yeah, you're 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 correct in that assessment for sure, Stan. Like post board, you pretty much um, in almost every matchup where you're expecting graveyard hate, which is quite a few. You're just looking to cut down on graveyard centric cards. Gra- cards are going to be weak to the graveyard graveyard hate, and that usually means Arclight Phoenixes. That usually means Treasure Cruise. So despite the fact that our deck is built around these cards and they're excellent in the deck. Um, that's where a card like Crackling Drake is really nice to come in. I don't want a bunch of treasure cruises that are lying on the graveyard. I'd rather have, you know, threats and card advantage in the form of Crackling Drake post board. So yeah, always trimming one, maybe two of that card for sure. Mm -hmm. Last cantrip question. Setting aside treasure cruise between opt, consider, and sleight of hand, three cantrips that are in every version of Phoenix, essentially. Do you have, uh, a hierarchy of best to worst. My feeling is that consider is the best because it can also put phoenixes in the yard, but like the the delta between opt and sleight of hand is is really narrow to me because like sleight of hand letting you choose from two cards feels so important, but it's a sorcery which sometimes kind of sucks. But I don't know, Scott. At the same time, you also said this is a deck that wants to play sorcery speed. So h- how do you guys evaluate the three, if at all? Um, I think Chris now would agree that, and said there, Stan, that consider is kind of far and away the best one. Like just the fact that it puts two cards in your graveyard, regardless if you're putting a Phoenix in there or not, um, just to fuel your cruise, it, it matters a ton. Um, I would play 12 considers in a heartbeat over any <laughs> of these other ones. Um, and whenever you do happen to mill, mill a Phoenix, it just feels like such a gimme, such a free roll where you're like, oh my gosh, this is unfair that I'm milling a Phoenix with this one. The things to think about um, with slide of hand versus opt. Slide of hand is having you look at two cards. Opt is only having you look at one, but you're still seeing two cards with a card, right? In, in a way, you're put, you know, you're digging two cards deep with both. And so, a lot of times, the card selection with opt and slide of hand are functionally the same because I think to some degree you should know what you're looking for when you cast a slide of hand or an opt. And so, when you do see that card off and that scry off an opt, you'll know, okay, I don't, I don't want this one. I'll, I'll dig a card deeper for for what I want. In terms of considerations for maybe which one you you'd want to shave in a given matchup something to think about is the instant speed on opt plays better with your counter spells which is which is nice with shredder and stuff it's easy to double spell on their turn um and the main upside of slide of hand is the fact that it doesn't actually draw you a card so um in matchups where cards like narset or shouldered are important sometimes you actually want that slide of hand because it's not triggering that draw card effect dig it we can do this so quickly about 12 removal spells. Fiery Impulse basically always hits for three, but it only hits creatures, which is fine in a 
format that cares about the board as much as Pioneer does. Lightning Axe, we've touched on, gets bigger creatures, but still only creatures. It also discards Phoenixes. Have you ever paid six for a Lightning Axe? I, I, I don't think I ever have. Yeah, it definitely comes up, right, Chris? What do you think? Every, every once in a while. As I was running with through um, Mark Stanton's games in his in the top eight from the RC with him, there was one spot where it was like, oh, I really... He didn't spot it at the time, but as we were reviewing, he was like, I think I should have just paid for six for Lightning Axe here. And I was like, yeah, that actually sounds really good to me. I didn't spot it either until he he pointed out this was... Th- that, that was where you... So it is one thing we're probably more six mana lightning axes should be cast but you don't always even see it mm. because you're, you're you're not thinking about that as an option it can be kind of hard to identify when you want to do that right because getting six lands into play isn't always something that happens easily and usually if that's happening it's with intention it's like i'm playing these lands because i need to get to all the storm giants or to cast it but a lot of times i'll see spots like you mentioned chris where people will just pay one for the axe discard a land it's like well hold on why don't, why don't you just play that land work towards hard casting it and it works out better in the long run um so it doesn't come up often but it's a really nice alternate mode to have for sure definitely happy it's there when it comes up i, I do want to talk about the removal suite in general just a little bit and this is where you know, my stance like Phoenix is a control deck comes from when the Pioneer Phoenix deck was first kind of getting iterated on. There was a tendency to try to imitate modern Phoenix and play like analogs of the cards as much as possible. Obviously, there's no analog to like Manamorphose, but they would play like a lot of Is It Charms because it's the most like Faithless looting. And they would play in the removal slot like Wild Slashes or whatever shock that can go to the face. And then over time, those just kind of got pushed out of the deck because they didn't kill enough stuff. They didn't kill at a high enough like mana ratio Wild Slash rarely kills a three-mana creature, right? Fiery Impulse kills almost every three-mana creature, save, like, the the Preacher of the Schism that people put specifically in their deck because it doesn't die to Fiery Impulse. Uh, and, and getting that, I, I have killed your three-mana creature with my one-mana spell allows you to also cast a bunch of cantrips and, and use your mana on that. And so it's not a priority to play cards spells that can necessarily be cast at any time just to get phoenixes back because like oh yeah i gotta go to the face that was fine when your spell was lightning bolt because man three damage to the face is a lot of damage to the face uh with a shock less exciting and the ability to kill stuff like graveyard trespass are just way more important and kind of cemented the placement of phoenix as like yeah this is a control deck we kill creatures and then we kill our opponent over time for sure and you know and Lightning Axe is, is really important for a lot of reasons like we've been talking about so far, but um, you mentioned that Lightning Axe kills big creatures. It's, it sounds obvious, but um, there's not a whole lot of ways to do that in blue-red. I'm a, I'm a big Steam Vents gamer. I love playing these blue-red decks, and if your deck can't enable Lightning Axe, um, there's really no other good options for you know cheap ways to kill big creatures in these colors, and so you're like actively thrilled to be allowed to put this card into the deck because... Um, it, it tackles problems that no other card can in such an efficient way. Yeah, the fact that you can kill Shieldred for one mana is... Mm-hmm. It, there. There's many turns where I'm sitting there like praying for my opponent's play to be Shieldred Go because you know that you'll, you yes. win the game at that point. Uh, what you're really hoping that they don't do 
is cast uh, Archfiend of the Dross in that spot because you can't that one's a lot harder to kill. Uh, and and that's actually like a very specific leak of the Phoenix deck. Just a, an exploitable weakness is once you hit those six toughness threats. And so I know that like the system magic Rakdos list is really leaning into just playing three Kroxas. The front side of Kroxa, not good against Phoenix. Once it's in the graveyard, though, the whole game revolves around trying not to get Kroxid. And Archfiend of the Dross is like a pretty similar thing where that thing's in play. It's extremely difficult to kill. And and also every time one of your Phoenixes dies, you take damage and you got to figure out a way around that. And it's it's not easy. The last two removal spells that come up are Spikefield Hazard, which serves double duty as like a, a possible land. Yeah, a jail free card if you open a land light hand. Deals one, it, it can exile a thing if it's, I guess, the last point of damage that kills the creature. It can also deal a point of damage to your face. Like if you need a third spell to trigger Phoenixes in a way uh, on an empty board, like Fire Impulse becomes an issue there. Um, but Hazard will, will ping for one, of course. Um, and then we have Torch the Tower, which is another newer one. This is a single red instant. It has Bargain. It's... It's not a shock. It deals two damage to target creature or walker. But if it was bargain, it deals three damage to that permanent and you scry one. Correct me if I'm wrong. There's no way to bargain this in the deck. Because to bargain, you need to sack an artifact, enchantment, or token. So this is just a one mana. Like Effectively, it's magma spray against phoenixes or certain creatures in Amalia. Yeah, this one's going up in stock, I think, as of late. Just because it's you know really nice to be able to... Um, have a way to exile phoenixes in the mirror. It's also something that's a pretty unique tool against Amalia. Being able to exile the Amalia is definitely a big game. Um, you kind of need to cut some number of fiery impulses for it, though, and so that's what makes it a difficult, um, difficult exchange to make. It's hard to you know make that swap because you're basically trading an extra point for the exile effect. That's that's the the main trade-off you're making. In some many games, that's worth it, but I think in most many games, it's not. But uh, it's definitely a nice option to have to reach for in case the mini game does get to that point where you'd want that effect. Yeah, and in, in really focused metas, I, I think you know if you were playing in an eight or sixteen player invitational and you started making good predictions that Phoenix and Amalia are heavy portions of the field, then it becomes like yeah. But outside of that, like. Fire Impulse Killing Smuggler's Copter and Graveyard Trespasser in particular is just huge, and I I really struggle to give that up. Mm-hmm. And then we have some additional flex slots. This is where I put Galvanic Iteration, which is the, the thing that copies your next spell. Temporal Trespass, which is the Delve card that lets you take an extra turn. You always see those ca- cards together, right? You're never playing Iteration without Trespass or vice versa. That's a nice wombo combo. Like, Scott, I think you kind of mentioned this briefly, but that's where this deck almost feels like a combo deck because once you do Galvanic Temporal Trespass, you usually win the game on that follow-up turn. But sometimes I see decks without it. Like, why are people ever cutting this two-card package? Um, so I'll talk a little bit about the upsides and maybe I'll pass it over to Chris to talk about the definitely very real downsides of it. Um, the Galvanic Iteration Trespass combo was something that the pieces of the puzzle versions of this deck leaned on pretty heavily um, in the past. Ever since you've got Picklock Prankster in the mix and you don't have as many two-for-ones in, in the deck, you kind of need more treasure cruises to make up for that. 
And so most lists you'll see either run zero or just one of each, um, like I've been doing. And I really love the, you know, love the aspect of the deck because it gives it gives you kind of a whole nother angle of attack game one where decks that are going over the top of you, like ramp decks or control decks or big five color mid-range decks, um, sometimes a couple hasty three twos and your shredders aren't really enough to get you over the finish line if they have a bunch of removal spells or what have you. Um, and just having one of each of those combos anywhere in your deck, because you're so good at ripping through your deck in the long game against the decks that are going over the top of you, you should be able to find it. And it gives you a way to actually slam the door shut. Um, a common play, play pattern you'll see with Galvanic and Trespass is just, you know, doing the combo for, you can do it as, for as little as five mana, and then just killing them with Hall of Storm Giants. It's just a really easy way to kill the decks that, you know, thinking of like the five color mid-range decks that do like Leyline Binding, Chain of the Rocks. It can be kind of hard to get over the finish line against those decks, but if you have that just one of each of those combos anywhere in your deck, you feel so much better in game one. It's a very heavily reliant graveyard thing, so just like Otherworldly Gaze, it does get come out a lot in the post-board games, but I've really enjoyed it as a tool um, game one. But there's some very real downsides to it for sure. Yeah, and I... I go back and forth on whether or not I want to play it. I, I don't think it's like clear that you should. I mean, most people do still. And I, I think it's probably the right way to build the deck. And I, I do think that probably means that you don't play otherworldly gaze, as I talked about earlier, because they don't really coincide. They're slightly different game plans that that don't go together super well. Uh, but yeah, I, I think combo is very important to have in your deck in like the mirrors and yeah, any, any time where their removal game one lines up very well against your stuff, the, the, your Phoenixes and your ledger shredders, then combo can be a way to steal games, uh, where it comes up as like, Oh, I wish I didn't have this in my deck is the grindier. The matchup is in ways where they're directly able to trade for your resources. Like the Phoenix mirror is grindy. But they can't trade for your cards in hand or your cards in graveyard or like permanently deal with your phoenixes. So it, it's it's different from grinding the way that you do against Rakdos where they're thought seizing you and trying to maybe land a graveyard trespasser and just rob you of your resources. And then you peel a, a temporal trespass off the top and it's just a blank card. And also when you're on the back foot you know, a treasure cruise you could cast and then draw a removal spell or two off of it, the land you need. And not that you're cutting treasure cruises, you know, and anybody who's playing a trespass, it's the fifth delve spell. But just as as a comparison, you're getting attacked by convoke and you draw a treasure cruise. You cast that for one mana. It draws you a land and a removal spell. You, you keep going. You draw a temporal trespass and you're like, I can't. I can't cast this right now or, you know, maybe you pay three mana for it, exile your graveyard and now your graveyard's empty for your treasure cruise that you need because it's eating the same resources as your treasure cruise. You can't just kind of cycle it the way an actual time warp would be cycled. So uh, decks that are exchanging resources with you, decks that are heavily pressuring you, you know, drawing one part of the combo can be a blank piece of cardboard for a decent portion of the game. So that's the risk of it. The payoff, though, can be very high, and I have found myself in, you know, game ones against Amalia missing being able to top deck a, a temporal trespass 
because one of the ways that those games end, it's like very difficult to start attacking them. You get a couple of phoenixes in play. Maybe you can attack with one phoenix, but you have to leave one back to hold off two to two or three one ones. And so you're not clocking them that fast. But then you draw the temporal trespass and you go, oh, okay, well, I can attack with two phoenixes on my trust on the turn. I cast the trespass and then I can attack with two phoenixes and you know this ledger shredder on the last and that will kill them now or something like that and and that turnaround can be pretty powerful so i you know there's a reason that the combo is in the vast majority of the phoenix decks that you see and although i haven't been playing it i recognize the power of it and go back and forth on whether or not i should be playing it how often are you copying anything else with the with galvanic iteration uh it depends on how desperate the situation is (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right, right. That, that's mostly just kind of uh, gravy with the card, right? Because it's in the mm-hmm. deck as a combo piece, really. And in general, with in Magic, when you draw a combo piece without the other half, it's kind of a dead card. One of the nice things about this is it's it's totally not. You know, you can mill it and it gets some value. You can discard it; it'll be there as value. And your deck's full of cheap spells, so copying a lightning axe in a in a key spot is huge. A lot of the things that people reach for against Phoenix with six toughness, like Chris was mentioning mentioning earlier, it's really nice to have that card in your deck just as an extra red spell, really, as like it plays as an extra fire impulse, it plays as an extra axe, um, just to finish off those things that people reach for against Phoenix that are a bit too big. Um, so, I mean, honestly, the answer is quite a bit. If you happen to draw it and, you know, you need an extra removal spell, I'm definitely going for it. And it ends up being really nice and if you're using the front side to do that then the back side is still in your graveyard to combo mm-hmm. at some point late in the game right the deck will run frequently some number of visit charms usually it's just like one or two that they do a couple things okay it's never amazing but like every once in a while you'll have two phoenixes in your hand and it is a charm and you're like we did it achievement unlocked Spell Pierce and Joari Disruption. I think these cards are pretty self-explanatory. I do find that I like to side out, side out the Disruption if I'm on the draw. Does that smell right to you guys? Uh, it's you know it's maybe it could be a little bit harder to work on the draw. Um, I found that like I don't board it out often because I'm just counting it as a land most of the time. And if it's in my deck, it's in the deck, and I'm count, you know it's a structurally a land in the deck. So and if you do get to counter something with it. That's awesome, but most of the time it's just the land. So I try my best to not to not board it out. Usually it's you know something that's greedy that I'm reaching for. But generally, if I'm disciplined, then I'm keeping it in the deck. And then the last one I want to bring up is is an addition I actually saw from uh, MTGO user Super Jerk was was the first person I saw do this. Uh, Chris, maybe you can go- offer some insights on what what that jerk was up to. <laughs> prismari command yeah i can probably offer some insights for anyone not in on the joke that is my mtgo username uh prismari command what (laughs) i thought i was just making fun of an mtgo user (laughs) uh so prismari command is a main deckable one of your shatters and you generally want a certain number of shatters in your sideboard because of unlicensed terse and reckoner bankbuster smuggler's copter less so because that they have to stand that up for it to do anything and you can always fire impulse it but those are kind of the big ones that you kind of want to kill at some point in the game and so you generally need three ish answers to them in your sideboard to feel comfortable prismari command is one that you can main deck that also serves the role of 
Uh, it can be an is it charm as long as it's not the last spell that you cast for pitching phoenixes because it refunds the mana with the treasure. It also kind of gives a lot of output for one piece of cardboard against decks like Rakdos in particular, like game one, you get thought seized. You're left with like some cards that don't really do anything. Maybe too many lands. You rip the Prismari command and now you can pitch some lands, maybe kill their Reckoner Bank Buster or kill their Blood Tithe Harvester that's pressuring you and just kind of like keep going. And it like digs you closer to your treasure cruise or whatever. I I've been happy with it. It's not a must. Yeah, definitely, definitely not a must. Um, something I want to touch on with Is It Charm as well as P- Prismari Command. Um, for a long time, I was just playing the two spell pierces in the main, not touching on either one of those. But um, I ran into a lot of spots game one where there there are matchups in the format where um, your shredders die a lot. They never live. You know, they can they have a million removal spells or what have you, um, and they don't have a lot of good targets for lightning axe. And so it's really nice to have at least one card in your deck, whether it be as a charm or Prismari command that you can be digging for with your cruises and digging for with your picklock pranksters um, that actually can unclog your hand of phoenixes. You know, you find it in a lot of spots against those decks. It's like I have two phoenixes in my hand, but they haven't given me anything to axe. They kill all my shredders um, before I can, you know, get get much value off of them. And you just need to get those phoenixes out of your hand. And Prismari command is a charm are both like flexible options as just a one of in your deck to, to dig for when you are, you do find yourself in those spots. So I've really liked one of either of those cards in the main deck. I, I did find myself in that spot against uh, the last round of day one of the RC against Rakdos Sacrifice. Uh, this is a matchup where you tend to take out all of your Ledger Shredders post-board because they're not good, basically. <laughs> There's a lot more that goes into that. but So you are lower on discard outlets, but you play these longer games, so it's not always that costly. But I was in this spot where I was getting worked by an unlicensed hearse, and I had two phoenixes in my hand at, at, at the time. Uh, my opponent thought seizes me and sees Picklock Prankster, a Consider, two phoenixes, and a Crackling Drake, and goes, well, I mean, that Crackling Drake has 15 power, so I guess I'd better take it. So they, he takes the Crackling Drake, and I'm just looking at this hearse that's beating me, and I'm like, I, I guess I just hope that this... I, it would be really nice if this Picklock Prankster could uh, hit my one of Prismari Command. And so I, I got six lands, I cast Free the Fae, I hit Prismari Command. It's just, you know, that's the one we wanted here. We kill the Unlicensed Hearse, discard the two Phoenixes... You know, unlicensed hearse can't respond to the Phoenix discard. It's it's just dead. And then we cast the consider. That's three spells. We put two Phoenixes into play. There's no unlicensed hearse on the table anymore, and, and we're kind of golden from that's there. That's the dream. That's what that's, that's the dream right there. That's what you put it in your deck, hoping will yeah. happen. And and it's not every if, day. If you were looking for a hard sell for for Prismar Command, I think that's it right there. I mean, that's that's the situation. Yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. just the, no, nothing else is doing that. But the reason that these these slots are like flex slots and one ofs is none of them are clearly like you gotta have this one in your deck, and so you just kind of pick a couple of the effects that you want, and because you see thirty plus cards in a game you're very likely to find you're like one of this effect that you don't really need twice in a game. And so these one ofs can have an outsized impact. Love it. Okay. So we promised to talk about Amalia combo and just like matchups in general. Let's do that now before we get sleepy. Amalia combo breakout deck of RC Atlanta. I've been playing against it and 
I'm shocked because you think your control deck would be very good against this creature combo deck, but then they play, what is it like return to the ranks and just laugh in your face after you spent all these cards, they gain 40 life. It feels like assuming they don't force a draw, they just like undo any damage you've ever done with your phoenixes undo any removal spells you ever cast on their creatures and just went on the spot. And I think the data showed after the weekend that the way people were building Phoenixes versus the way people were building Amalia, Amalia is like pretty significantly favored. Is there a way to shore that up? I got trapped by this because the versions that popped up initially on Magic Online of Amalia were, you know, not built the best, not piloted the cleanest, and their sideboards were... they were basically playing zero card sideboards. They were like bringing in Leyline of the Void, which I think just actively makes the deck worse against Phoenix to to draw a Leyline of the Void because they just want to be slamming, you know, combo threat after combo threat every single turn and making you have it. And it's very difficult to have it every single turn. Uh, I, I think that playing the sweepers is really good because you can kind of start shutting them down and making them less likely to be able to threaten the combo you have to bring in some amount of combo or you have to bring in some amount of counter magic because you have to stop return to the ranks from happening it's a tough tough matchup because of just like how relentless they are in continuing to making threats and i think the biggest key is mulliganing aggressively if your hand has no red cards in it you can't keep a hand that's like two lands you know four cantrips and a picklock prankster or something like that you have to be reacting to their stuff as early as possible so and that includes like the one drops the innkeepers everything well you're hoping to catch those with the sweeper because like targeting all of their soul wardens with your removal is a great way to just run out of removal yeah no okay so when we talk about sweepers though like most phoenix players these days are playing brotherhood's end are we supposed to move back to anger of the gods and just like hope you don't kill your own phoenixes with it i mean maybe honestly <laughs> is the answer um, i had a really similar experience to chris in that you know i wasn't scared of this Molly deck at all the first couple of weeks he was being played <clears throat> and even like the weekend before atlanta um lists were popping up but i was still beating it relatively frequently just because people picking it up had just picked it up or like chris mentioned the sideboards weren't built perfectly um the list that showed up in the rc and the way that they were piloted think that we're pretty squarely disadvantaged in the matchup and it might take stretch cards like anger the gods that you wouldn't otherwise want to play um to to balance that matchup out because i definitely i definitely struggled there and found that it was much much harder than i was initially giving it credit for i, I saw somebody putting graph diggers cages in their phoenix deck because their plan was take out all the phoenixes against amalia anyways so might as well cage them one card I do want to highlight there that um, I don't have a ton of reps with just yet, but something that I did see in some Phoenix sideboards at the RC that might be a good a good strategy versus Amalia was Ashiok Dream Render, I believe is the name. That one seemed mm-hmm. okay. Uh, it's like a three-mana hybrid blue-black Planeswalker that um, you can mill target player for four and then exile target opponent's graveyard, which is like nice to help with your turn of the rank stuff, but it also has a static ability of not letting your opponents search their library so it can shut off the the quarter calling as well. So it serves a little bit of a dual function. I'm not super sold on that yet. I'll have to try it, but that was just one that piqued my interest that I saw popping up at the RC. It was also one, you know, I, I think the intent of that card was also to be a split hate card, like for the mirror as well. Mm-hmm. 
because if you keep denying your opponent your graveyard while milling yourself, you're certainly going to be the better treasure right. cruise deck. I'm a little skeptical about the three mana blue sorcery speed planeswalker being a mirror breaker. Uh, yeah. It depends a little on your opponent's sideboard, but you run right into the counter magic that gets brought in, Mystical Dispute especially. Yeah. And, you know, I had an opponent bring in Narsets against me, which should be a scary thing, but I saw them in his sideboard, so I brought in my two Brazen Borrowers, and basically, when he cast the Narset, it ultimately like put him into a tempo black hole that, that he couldn't crawl out of because I was just trading for his turns very efficiently. Right. I think the other arguable breakout deck of the weekend was Blue White Control, which I, I think there was some expectation that control stock was going to decline in a post-appraiser world, but between Amalia Combo and just like the rest of the field, but for Phoenix maybe, Control was just sort of feasting. Have, have you found that like generally speaking, like Phoenix is somewhat favored there? I feel like as, as long as they're not exiling your birds or even if they are like you can then like just kill them with lands, but you you're threat heavy enough that you can basically like play at least a creature every turn and then force them to like spend their turns like constantly looking for answers. And then sometimes you can recur the phoenixes. Sometimes you just play Hall of the Storm Giants and activate it. Yeah. I, What's your assessment of that matchup? Yeah, I found the matchup to be really good for Phoenix, and I think that the data will back me up on that one, at least at the at the RC. I think Phoenix was the, the one matchup that Blue-White was, was struggling with the most. Um, I think that's just a function of your spells being so much cheaper. They just have so many expensive cards in their deck, and if you're ever able to trade one mana for four mana or one mana for three mana, like you're often able to do against them, um, you just feel like you're really far ahead. So... Um, game one, unless they get an early farewell off, or a lot of the lists of the RC were even reaching for main deck Hollowed Moonlight, which is definitely that good one's scary as well. Yeah, definitely that can swing a matchup for sure. I played against a lot of lists that had two of those in their main deck, and it's like it's pretty good. It's a pretty good one against Phoenix. But generally, I've found that game one's great because you can protect your Phoenixes from all the exile effects they have with your own fiery impulses that would be dead otherwise. Things get a little trickier games two and three, but they have so much more graveyard hate things get a little a little hairier but um i found that matchup to be really good if i'm sitting across from blue white as a phoenix player i got i got a smile on my face for sure and the thing about the post board games which i i think you realize just after playing a lot of them is that they're not a very good control deck once rest in peace is in play so your counter magic is better against them than their counter magic is against you generally because their spells that count all cost four or five mana and, uh, you know, you don't want to just run stuff into Dovin's vetoes and just like be getting blown out all game. But if you play carefully and just watch for the turns that, oh, yeah, Wandering Emperor would be good this turn. I better make sure to have a counter spell ready for it. Uh, then that's really good. And then their main card advantage engine is Memory Deluge. And in game, mm -hmm. you know. In a lot of situations, I am interested in countering the first half of a memory deluge because the first half of a memory deluge sets up the flashback of the memory deluge very well and kind of like gets their whole engine rolling. If they have a rest in peace in play, though, their memory deluge is 
almost don't matter. They're not able to cast that like giant flashback card advantage spell anymore. And you just keep up with them on cards and you trade one for one with them a bunch and you can't treasure cruise, but you can force a crackling Drake through. And so you have similar ways of getting card advantage in your deck. And uh, you just don't have to be afraid of like the, the memory deluge train rolling out of the station and, and the post-board games can play out pretty interestingly uh, with no graveyards available to either player. Why is Lotus Field so hard? Is Lotus Field just good against Steam Vents? Is that what it com- comes down we're to? A, we're an anti-creature deck, and they are a stack-based deck that counterspells aren't very good against. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's it's weird because it seems like um, if you're unfamiliar with the format, that maybe you'd have an okay matchup here. It's like, I'm a blue deck, I can put pressure into play, and I have counters to back it up. That would seem like it would be enough, but... Um, the, yeah, the, the whole Lotus Field deck is just set up to to win those fights on the stack. I can just make so much mana. Your soft counters like Spell Pierce and Ninja Charm just aren't enough. Um, and you, you are pretty good at putting on pressure, but it's not nearly enough to actually close the game out in a, in a meaningful time frame. It doesn't really matter if you hit them for three or six here and there. Like They're just going to win the game on turn five, like almost no matter what. Um, so th- the strategy for me has just been to, A, hope to dodge it. B, just mulligan aggressively for a shredder or something and hope they stumble. Mm. And that's kind of that's kind of it. You know, it sounds uh, defeatist, but I think that you have to be realistic about where your good matchups are and where your, your bad matchups are. And that's very firmly in, in the bad matchup category. And, and it sounds like it's so bad that it's not even worth like putting an Alpine Moon or two in your sideboard because like you just get so little benefit out of that yeah i'm not convinced there's any number of alpine moons you could put in your sideboard that would make the matchup favorable so <laughs> there's probably some number but i think so <laughs> but once four you just wouldn't you can't spend those slots on it when the deck is three or four percent of the meta game at most right. once it, mm-hmm. if, if that deck mm-hmm. hits like eight percent then you could but you also maybe should just play something else then right <laughs> The the other deck I think is important to mention is Rakdos Mid, which has been like a pillar of the format for, God, at least a year. And we're good here. Like I, you, you know, Chris, you mentioned like sometimes you just want them to tap out for Shieldred because you sort of feel like you're guaranteed to win from those positions. And I just found like because we're so recursive and because like we're recursive and we have removal spells that line up against pretty much all of their creatures unless they're pre-boarding for us like there's so little that they can do to like really impact us in the long term and cards like Thoughtseize and and trespasser and and like even liliana if they're playing that still like just don't really impact us in, in meaningful ways whatsoever well trespasser is one that does trespasser depending on how the game is playing out can be a problem but yeah I love my Rakdos matchup now, which is odd to say because it it previously was not a good matchup. But something about the efficiency of picklock pranksters plus the the dig from having your sleight of hands as cantrips nine through twelve, you just they thought sees you, but you are going to treasure cruise. Previously, it was they thought sees you, and maybe you wouldn't hit a treasure cruise, and then that's good. But anytime you have been thought seized and then you treasure cruise, that's not good for the thought seized player. And the vast majority of games now, you will treasure cruise after getting thought seized unless they really hit you with something. Uh, and, and so I, I think the matchup is just 
fine now until they start doing different things like I, I got to play a bunch of Archfiend of the Dross or Croxas or or whatever specifically for the matchup. Yeah, there's definitely a 75 that you could build of a Rakdos deck that would be favored against Phoenix. That, that, that could totally exist, but it wouldn't be a realistic deck against the rest of the format. So Chris mentioned Graveyard Trespasser. As good as it is against Phoenix, you're seeing that one get cut or shaved a lot now, just as these Rakdos decks are trying to lower their curve, play Copters, play Enties. Um, this all favors us as a Phoenix player. They're just playing a lot of really easy creatures to kill that don't interact with our graveyard in a meaningful way. I think and that, Copter over Bankbuster is right. just a huge net positive for Phoenix. 100%. That was definitely one of the ways you could lose a game one, is they thought he's your only proactive card advantage spell or you know the way to dig through your deck, and they play Bankbuster, and you're just sitting there with fire impulses and axes, and they can definitely get ahead that way, for sure. Um yeah, I think just having the, the extra cantrip just gave you the redundancy to beat up on all the Thoughtseize decks now. Like, it's now it's you can get Thoughtseize, and you'll just be able to find whatever it is you're looking for down the line. Um, you're so redundant in that way. So I've really enjoyed the matchup. In addition to it being a favorable matchup, I think it's just fun, too. It's very interactive. It's very swingy back yeah. and forth. And I've, yeah, I've really enjoyed that one. It's it's my favorite magic to play in, in Pioneer. Every, for sure. Every time I see Blackleaf Cliffs, I kind of pump the fist, both because... I do feel like we're fine against them, but also because I know like we're going to have a good time right. playing magic. We're going to have a magic. game of magic. Yeah. 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 And, and this is, you know, entirely this, this is anecdotal, but in the RC, I played against Rakdos Midrange four times on day one. I went three and one against it. The one match that I lost, my opponent was playing four graveyard trespassers and the three matches mm-hmm. that I won, they were not playing. Nobody else was playing more than two graveyard trespassers. So, you know, good news for Phoenix. I feel like with Trespasser, though, like you just have to prepare for it and like don't let them catch you with your birds down. Like you can almost use the the ward effect to your benefit while also like removing it fairly easily. That That's why like it, it's mostly that that Trespassers in multiples are a problem. The first one you usually can deal with at a slight card advantage deficit and then make it up. But then you generally have your pants down for the second one if they happen to have it. Right. Okay, so you know what else is a um, a Thoughtseize deck other than Rakdos? It's Grixis Phoenix. Is it worth playing Grixis Phoenix anymore? It had it had its day in the sun, and then it feels like the sun is setting on Thoughtseize and, what is it, Deadly? No, it's not Deadly Dispute. It's... Bitter Triumph. That's the one, Bitter Triumph. Yeah, so I think that... That honestly is the biggest reason to be is it, as I said earlier, the efficiency of lightning axe, which often is the single best removal spell in the format. One mana, five damage plus an effect that you want. Uh, it's a, it's a remarkable difference costing one man. I mean, two mana is twice as much as one mana. And if you're looking at Phoenix as an anti creature deck, the gap between I have eight one mana terminates and I have four one mana terminates and actually fatal push is significantly worse than fiery impulse. It's also significantly worse. You can't trigger revolt in the Demir version of the deck. So fatal push is extremely limited in what it can target. And then bitter triumph costs two mana. And so you're just a lot less efficient at dealing with your opponent's creature threats with the Demir version and Thoughtseize, an incredible card. The entire reason to play the deck that costs you two life. So with the six shock lands 
and the four Thoughtseize is in the deck, you end up paying quite a bit of life with the Demir version. And so against the onboard decks, you end up on the back foot more often. You uh, end up with a lower life total than you are really comfortable being at. And that's that's the cost of playing that version is you're just a little less efficient and you are not as good against creatures for multiple reasons. And you kind of get pushed around by stuff like I found Convoke much more difficult as the blue black version and uh, decks like that. I, I found humans much more difficult as well. And those are matchups that you should be kind of uh, pretty happy to play against with the is it version and uh now you are much more capable of beating Lotus Field, but that's only a small portion of the format. And we're specifically choosing is it Phoenix because we just kind of plan not to play against that that type of deck. But Chris, have you considered that Grixis is sweet and cool? It, it, it is sweet and cool. And you know what? I top aided a challenge. This we we top aided the same challenge playing Demir Phoenix, and I haven't top aided a challenge playing Is It Phoenix yet. So I mean, yeah, at least we gave it a try, right? We're not just dismissive of it at first. You know, I will admit that when I first saw it, I, I think it did well at one of the RCs. Uh, I believe it was a South American one. I just thought, like, okay, I mean, that seems cute, that seems sweet, but um, it doesn't seem like it's got. You know, it has legs in the format, but I'll admit once I tried it, I was like, this works pretty well. And the Thoughtseize is really nice to have in a Phoenix deck. But um, I think Chris was touching on this. Maybe this is an oversimplification, but um, I think one of my friends described it to me this way after after trying it. And it made a lot of sense to me. It felt like the, the Grixis deck was, um, it was a worse Phoenix deck. It was worse at doing the Phoenix things and returning them reliably. It was also a worse Thoughtseize deck than like Rakdos was. Because because you don't have as many standalone one one um, standalone threats like Fable or um, you know other high impact three drops, so you don't have as many ways to actually punish them for for taking their important removal spells, slamming a Fable. So like you're a worse Rakdos midrange deck and you're a worse Phoenix deck. So like what do we what do we really do in here? There are all sorts of problems with the with the Grixis version that you know maybe we don't have time to get into all of them right now, but. Um, just to just to touch on a couple of them, like Chris mentioned with with is it the curves lower so you can more reliably get your phoenixes back with axe. Chris also mentioned that Demir deals a lot of damage to itself, so it's not very good at racing, which is kind of Phoenix's bread and butter. The is it deck also fights the graveyard hate better as well. Not only because you actually have answers to graveyard hate, like unlicensed hearse, you actually have ways to kill that, whereas the blue black version is just kind of cold to it. Um, but even if you can't kill their graveyard hate piece. Black doesn't have as many good threats post-board um, that don't involve the graveyard. Crackling Drake is a really big deal for what I mentioned earlier, that it it kills them and it also is a value play. Black has Shouldered, which is great. That's not really going to help you against something like Black Red that's attacking your graveyard and also has plenty of removal spells to kill your guys. So not having that value threat in the sideboard was, um, was kind of a problem. And then last but not least... Um, you're mostly a blue-black deck. You can't really cast your snare top through that easily. And that that seems uh, pretty obvious, but that comes up, and um, it's it feels pretty bad when you can't just cast the card in your hand, you know? Yeah, especially, like, as you were saying, like, the, the gap between the two juke threats of, like, Shieldred and Crack Crackling Drake, 
So say you're playing against Rakdos, you're both low on resources, and you've reached the four mana threats point in the game. You play a Crackling Drake, and if their response is to play their own threat, like, I'm going to play my own Shieldred here, that's fine. You win by attacking with Crackling Drake. You play a Shieldred, they play a Shieldred. Now you're playing a game that you don't want to play, where you each have a Shieldred and play, and your four mana threat is never going to close out the game, and your graveyard is getting attacked, so you, you don't have a way out of that situation. Cool. So... Sorry, Grixis. You just have to wait for Lotus Field to get better, I guess. Or we, or we need more stronger tools and the blue-black shell to actually make it worth it. I, I do agree that the deck is better than my intuition told me that it would be. And Sedgemore Witch is also like a really... I, I really like Sedgemore Witch a lot. So <laughs> That's funny. Uh, the, the life gain off of the pests can help you in those tougher... When they're attacking you with creatures, Sedgemore Witch is a great... like go-to card from your sideboard for that so there's there's ways to mitigate some of this stuff but i think ultimately on balance like is it just as solving problems more efficiently right right okay there's one last thing i want to talk about before we wrap this up which is a certain card that's buried in the sideboard that's really fun cool and cute and doesn't come up in phoenix conversations that i hear okay and that's called Fable of the Mirror Breaker. <laughs> I love bringing in this card. And I love bringing it in when I've also brought in Crackling Drake. I have won a couple games of like living the dream and making Crackling Drake copies and drawing extra cards and just like swing for 10. Like the turn that I literally cast the Crackling Drake. How do you think about Fable in different matchups? Do you find that there's a place where it's like at its best, at its worst? Are you always thinking or are you ever thinking about the Fable Drake Wombo combo? What's your assessment there? Um, I'll start on this one, then I'll pass it over to Chris, because uh, Chris is the one that actually put me on to Fable in the sideboard um, as of late. And then he's since taken it out. So I'd like to hear his reasoning for that in just a moment. But um, I think there's a lot of upside to Fable. I mean, not exactly a hot take that Fable is just a great card. Um, I think that along with Chris's convincing and just in thinking about how I wanted to build the cyborg, um, Fable made a lot of sense to me. It fits, it checks the boxes of the post-board threat in that um, it's also kind of a value play. So when they are bringing Graveyard Hate, um, it doesn't feel bad to just play it and have them kill it with a removal spell because you get all this extra value in addition. Um, the card it's historically replaced in the cyborg was Sahili. That's one that um, I was unimpressed by for a long time. People like it as kind of a, a juke threat out of the sideboard, but I was noticing that um, against the Thoughtseize decks, that's not really what you want to do. They are really trying to play a low-resource game with you with a bunch of discard spells, go blanks, Thoughtseize's duresses, and when all you have is a Zaheeli, let's say you top deck it after they strip your hand, it's literally doing nothing, and that's not at all what you want out of a, out of a sideboard threat. Um, so I think it's a pretty easy argue to make to say that the Fable is better against the Thoughtseize decks than the Sahili is. Um, for a while, I could I could hear the case that Sahili was better against the blue-white decks because they have a hard time with Planeswalkers, but since Get Lost got printed, I don't even think that's true anymore. So I don't really see a good reason to play Sahili. Um, maybe you don't need that slot at all, like Chris, will, Chris is going to talk about, but um, in terms of Sahili versus Fable, I think it's pretty clear that Fable is, is, is the answer um, in those low-resource games. Yeah, I so I originally... I 
had the identical feelings about Sahili. I've never been impressed by it, and it seemed to just kind of get worse and worse, despite you having a higher density of cantrips now, which like would kind of make it better. Yeah, it just doesn't do the thing that you're, you're hoping it would do. I initially was excited about Fable because and, and this is this is not not true. This is still absolutely true. I like bringing it in because you get to keep all of your treasure cruises in and still have ways of pitching them when that graveyard hate is is hitting you and you can just pitch your extra treasure cruises to Fable when, when the rest in pieces in play. And that's a really valuable thing in a juke threat to be able to make the rest of your deck better against the hate cards that your opponent is bringing in and not just being good on its own against the hate cards the way that Crackling Drake is. Um, I really mostly just cut it because I was playing against so much Rakdos and I would rather draw Crackling Drake into Crackling Drake over anything else in the Rakdos matchup. And that was just kind of ultimately the, the thing that made me go towards just Crackling Drakes. It's also like you can't really halfway it you can't bring in the fables if you're not you can bring in the fables if you're not bringing in the crackling drakes but it's not very good and it's not as threatening so you kind of need to bring them all in as a package yeah i've never done so, that i've never it's never come yeah. up to where that's been the, the, the correct case i think to only bring right. in one so you're right it is kind of a package deal which is fine it's a good package and there's matchups that are not rakdos where drawing two Crackling Drakes is really clunky, but drawing a Fable and a Crackling Drake is excellent. So I, I I don't have any reason to say, like, you must play the three Crackling Drakes and two Brazen Borrowers that I registered for the RC. But I, I, I think it was mostly just that I hit a place where I wanted two Brazen Borrowers in my sideboard. And then it felt very weird to register, like, two Crackling Drakes and one Fable of the Mirror Breaker. And I do really like bringing in three Crackling Drakes versus Rakdos. So that's just kind of how I ended up on those that that particular package of sideboard threats. Cool. Well, we did it, boys. <laughs> we dove into a deck. You know, we, we touched on at the top of the show when we were introducing Scott that you're the current Pioneer Trophy Leader. What's that feel like? Are you getting recognized a lot? Everyone's just bowing down around me. At, it feels I, at, at the mall. People like right. give you oh like God, free you, pretzels and stuff. Yeah, no, um, I, mean, I do. If what you're asking is yes, I do feel a lot better than everyone else. So that's really nice to have. <laughs> um, just give me that confidence. No, um, it's just, it's a funny thing because Magic Online doesn't reward that at all. So it's literally just cloud and that's don't it. you get like better <laughs> avatars or something like do you, you i don't like, even think that's true yeah nope i don't think so uh, well, what did you get like a certain avatar when <laughs> when you get enough trophies more right. than anything right it is it is funny though but since i've been in the league whenever i do i'll often get paired against someone online and they'll immediately type in the chat like great so unlucky like i'm playing against the trophy like they just think i'm like this unbeatable and it's like dude no like you're probably gonna beat me it's fine um Someone did mention at the the RC one of my friends was talking. He thought like, wouldn't it be cool if Magic Online gave like an RC invite to the seasonal trophy yeah. leader? Like, that would be pretty neat, and it would like totally raise the ecosystem of Magic Online a ton. I think to actually have an incentive pr structure there, I think that would be really cool. But as of now, they should do that for a standard season. Certainly, I think that would be a great idea. It's such a low opportunity cost. It's one invite, but it would just make everyone in the leagues just be it'd be make it that much more popular. So. 
Um, it's <laughs> it's hard for me to advocate for that as the trophy as the current trophy leader. <laughs> 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 they should really be giving me something. No, but um, I think it's just because I, I play so much. So that's that's kind of <laughs> where I'm at. Is, is that really what it takes? Just like sheer volume and like having a deck that you drive with and playing it well over and over again you have to you have to enjoy it you know i I don't i don't play magic online because i want all the trophies i just enjoy playing phoenix and so it'll just happen incidentally so if you don't enjoy the deck you're playing then you know what's this all for anyway getting recognized in malls i guess (laughs) (laughs) all right i think that's gonna wrap up this week's show scott you know you stream you tweet where can people find you? Yes, um, so I'm Oaf McNamara on X, and I'm Oaf McNamara on Twitch. So, and Oaf McNamara on Magic Online. So, uh, if you ever want to reach out to me, Twitter is probably the best, or X is probably the best way to do that. I stream every once in a while. If you want to hop on, hop on there, say what's up. I love chatting about Magic. Love chatting about Phoenix. Um, so that's where to find me. Chris, are, are you still on the internet? I am still on the internet. I am uh, posting at rates like far exceeding anything that i have in the past i don't really know why but i'm enjoying Dude, twitter a lot lately so you are the you're... eye of the storm for discourse right now i'm 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 storm chasing i don't think i'm quite the eye of the storm <laughs> lee lee is the one who really got caught up in it the other day but you know i'm i'm just around making my silly little like meta posts and stuff so at ccr underscore grindcast if you're interested i do also genuinely tweet my thoughts about magic pretty consistently so there's some content in there as well yeah yeah who knew that lee was single-handedly flooding the economy with counterfeit cards right (laughs) i was very glad when uh you know jerry came out on the you know on the side of the angels there and kind of like lent support to this the the perspective that i and lee share yeah all right well thank you both for being on the show chris always happy to to record with you glad that you were able to get back on scott it was a pleasure to to meet you and and record with you and i'm not just saying that because you told me you like the dive down you were also vouched for and and i'm glad this got to work out awesome happy to be here and that wraps up this week's show if you haven't yet, make sure you subscribe to our podcast and the MTG Grindcast so you get the latest episodes of both shows as soon as they come out. And if you use Apple Podcasts, leave all of us a rating and review. We appreciate it on the dive down. Chris and Lee appreciate it on Grindcast. I think Scott appreciates it on both of our behalves. If you'd like to submit a question to us directly, though, you can tweet us at the dive down all one word or email the dive down at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the show, financially you can join our patreon at patreon.com slash the dive down or check out our store at the dive slash store head over to heavyplay.com to get some incredible deck and dice boxes and playmats featuring the equip mag system use promo code the dive down 2023 for 10 percent off your first order and shout out to manatraders.com for sponsoring the dive down sign up for manatraders using promo code the dive down 23 all one word for 10 percent off your first two months of renting magic online cards and also get some amazing shaving soaps body soaps fragrances and more at barrister and man using promo code the dive down 23 that's spelled out that's all words and letters the dive down 23 it gets you 15 percent off your first order and finally save some money on paper cards over at nerd rage gaming using code dive eight for eight percent off your order at nrg as always special thanks to the bands nowhere and space blood for letting us use their music and until next week get out there and have a happy new year